Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. Last week, we started talking about 20 truths or so of the Book of Mormon, uh, what Mormonism can't teach, and what the Restoration uh, doesn't teach. Um, We started out last week talking about who God is, Corey. Uh, I was listening this week uh, and thinking as I listened to the Bible Project, uh, how do you read the Bible was their topic of their um, podcast this week, which was really neat, talking just about the paradigm of these two scholars, like how they grew up in their faith journey. And and one of them said, you know, I was kind of taught that you go in and you read the Bible or you look for, you know, things on love or scripture search, and you try to set these boundaries on how we this, this, these guide rails, they say, that kind of keep us in our moral way and what's right and wrong. And it was interesting how they talked about that the Bible was, uh, you know, especially the New Testament, was a bunch of letters to the church of that time, which meant it, they were culturally, it was relative to their culture, right? <laughs> <clears throat> and, um, and so you really have to know what's going on in that culture and because those were letters were written written to the congregations and churches and how they were functioning then. But we don't always get, well, of course, we don't get what their culture was and what their background was. And so I was thinking uh, just this morning, the Book of Mormon is really neat because the authors are very aware and they let us know they're very aware of the purpose of their writing Mm. and that they even pray that as they write their words on how to come to Christ and things that that, that in the latter days, that will come back to their people. Mm. And they, they mention, and even then it's mentioned that even our people now don't understand the writings of Isaiah because our culture is so far removed. And I, and so I realized that they knew as they wrote about Jesus and how to come to him and be changed and repent, that it was going to go to people that, were even farther removed from the culture of the Hebrews. And so mm. it was in a very plain way who God is, and those truths were very simple. Mm. Mm. I like that. As opposed to uh, the Bible where you really have to extract and do a lot of work. We've talked about that before. So one thing I was thinking about was the golden calf in the Old Testament, and I listened to an episode that they talked about that. I grew up thinking, um, well, what was your, your understanding? I'm sure is, is probably on spot on now, or, or always was. But I was grown up thinking that the golden calf. So you, you had this story of this, these Israelites that were in captivity forever due to their turning away from God and different sins and things, and and then the Lord leads them out and they part the water and they go through the Red Sea and there's this great miracle. And then Moses goes up to the mountain, and it's not even, no time goes by at all before they've made this idol to worship. And that's that's how I, and you think, how in the world could they, could they leave the, the one true God that just showed such a miracle to, to worship a golden calf? Mm-hmm. And that's partially true, but but the real truth of that is, as as. John from the Bible Project said they were still team Yahweh. They weren't worshiping another God, but what they did is they took God, whose purpose of bringing them out of captivity was that 
they could know him and who he is. And he told Moses in the mountain for the first time very plainly who he was. He wanted them to know him as he was. And they sat there and wanted to know him as they wanted to know him. It yeah. made him in their image. Yeah, they made a graven image, right, right. And there's a lot of peril, a uh, lot of imagery there, but the fact that they took a, a creature such as a cow uh, that was created by this Yahweh, by this great majestic being and, and put it into the creature and made the, the God into a creature uh, and worshipped him and, and, of course, using the gold and things. The, the, there's a word that talked about the loops from the women's ears. Those were the same word used to build the temple where you went in to worship God in the Holy of Holies, the priest did, and then they took that same material and they made it into this cow, this calf, where they were going to make it in their image and displace the image of who God really was. Mm. Um, all of that to tie into a, a quote that I, I wrote down here. It says, The golden calf story shows us how Israel and all of humanity tries to domesticate God and worship him on their own terms. <laughs> on their own terms. Yeah, yeah. We have a scripture similar to that in the first chapter of the Doctrine and Covenants. Every man walketh in his own way, and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world, and whose substance is that of an idol, which waxeth old and shall perish in Babylon. Hmm. So let's, uh, if that if that little uh, quote is true, and I think it is, and, and you can see parallelisms throughout history of the golden calf, if all of humanity really does try to domesticate God and worship him on their own terms, then it probably, it, I think it serves us well in our culture and in our faith to look at uh, what happened in the restoration and how this plain and precious and simple truth came back, uh, kind of like how Moses went up into the, into the mountain and God uh, told him who he was and I'll actually read the scripture because this is the most quoted scripture in the Bible where the Bible quotes itself. And this is the very first time we get this great picture as God explains who he is. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loyal love and faithfulness, a keeper of loyal love for thousands, forgiver of iniquity, transgression and sin. We just he explains himself as the God of mercy right there, and yet surely not declare innocent the guilty, the visitor of the iniquity of fathers upon the sons and upon the sons of sons to the third and fourth generation. So there's the God of justice, and that's the first time God clearly explains who He is, and that's that's the God that um, He wanted Moses to take to the people and say, "This is the God we worship." We're out of captivity. He is our God, and and yet they they made him into this image of theirs. Hmm. And so, as we have plain and precious truth come back to us in the latter days, and it says so that they'll know how to come to Christ um, and to convince us and the Jews and the Lamanites that Jesus is the the Christ, the eternal God, and how to come to Him, and then we take that kind of like Moses going up into the mountain again, saying, this is who I am. This is how you come to me. And and a lot of it is about how Jesus Christ is God, the eternal father and how he came down and showed us that this is how you, you see, you see me, you've seen the father, you know who your God is now. Now he's not just up in a mountain in a cloud, but he's come to the people. 
And that book explains who he is better than anyone or anything else in this world. And then we kind of make a golden calf of what it's all about, this relationship with God. And and um, and we substitute a lot of things that, that may or may not be as important as we think they are, but priesthood authority and, um, uh, you know, eternal life and uh, levels of heaven and things that have, you know, building this Zion uh, in our own time and, and keeping the commandments so that it will come forth. All of these stories that just don't quite – mesh up with who God wanted us to understand and what he wanted our work to be. Mm, I love that. I love that. All that Is means. that the end of the podcast? Because that no. was really good. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, continue with this uh, first truth of the Book of Mormon that Mormons can't teach. Why can't they teach this, yeah. this truth of who God is? Why can't Mormons teach that, Corey? basic answer is because they trust in the arm of flesh. They've supplanted our boy Brigham's teachings mm-hmm. and others and say, well, yeah, maybe the Bible says this or the Book of Mormon says this, but Brigham said that. And so that's their first go-to. Book of Mormon teaches this. For behold, and preface, this is King Benjamin speaking to his people for the first time about Jesus Christ, as far as we can tell. This is their introduction to Jesus. For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant, that with power the Lord omnipotent who reigneth, which was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay. The God, the Creator, will take on flesh. That's what it's saying right there. Book of Mormon says this. And this is one verse out of a hundred from cover to cover of the Book of Mormon. This is the message of the Book of Mormon. This is it. And so then what do we get? Well, we could first turn to, um, if anyone's on the Internet, you could go to the Community of Christ website and look at their basic beliefs. So one facet of this recipient group of the Book of Mormon, and this is at communitychrist.org. What do we believe? Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith and beliefs. These basic beliefs are not the last word, but an invitation to further explore your discipleship. And then it says God. We believe in one living God who meets us in the testimony of Israel, is revealed in Jesus Christ, and moves all creation as the Holy Spirit. That sounds pretty good to me. But then this is what it says. We affirm the Trinity. Now, stopping right there, the word Trinity, triune, those words don't even exist in the Bible. They're, they're not biblical words. I mean, as far as that, they're, they're words we've coined to describe something. Mm-hmm. So we affirm the Trinity, God who is a community of three persons. All things that exist owe their being to God, mystery beyond understanding and love beyond imagination. This God alone is worthy of our worship. And then it goes on and it describes the next person, Jesus Christ, and the next person, the Holy Spirit. But you get a flavor of that, right? So LDS, this is at churchofjesuschrist.org. The Holy Trinity is the term many Christian religions use to describe God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. Latter-day Saints believe strongly in all three, but we don't believe they're all the same person. Now, when the brother of Jared 
is in the mountain seeing God's finger touching stones to give light to his boat. In that moment of prayer, he's praying to God the Father, the Elohim, the God of justice. And then when he sees this finger and this God reveals himself, he's not speaking and saying, hey, I'm sending my best buddy here. This is my son, Jesus. He says, I am Jesus. I am God. I am the Father. But this is how I manifest myself to you in the flesh. And my spirit in this body, he said, this is the body of my spirit. The spirit that we call the Holy Ghost is the spirit that inhabits the body of Christ. It's all one. That's the record of the Book of Mormon is that God is one as one. And he can manifest himself in multiple ways, but there are not three separate people. This is, <clears throat> again, um, you know, the LDS website, the, the Community of Christ website, RLDS tradition, um, and, and even from there, here's just one restoration branch. I, I grabbed one off the internet. It's, it's Waldo, but it's not specific to them because I think most of the restoration branches declare their epitome of faith. And this is where it starts. We believe in God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And we believe in God the Father, his Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we believe that God the Father and Christ the Son are two separate personages. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I'm sharing this because <clears throat> here's the Gentile restoration, the recipients of the Book of Mormon. And the, the very first and foremost idea of the Book of Mormon, that God is manifests himself in different ways, but is one God from the beginning, is taken in a totally different direction with all the major faiths within the Gentiles. I remember uh, going back several episodes, we talked about even and even the Bible and the Old Testament, Isaiah, uh, the Book of Mormon clarifies that all of the references, those references to God were also to, was to Jesus Christ. Yeah. And yeah. we that was a really one of my favorite episodes when we took those different names and then saw those names in the Book of Mormon clarified where you could tell who it was referring to. You know, it's interesting, the names. So we get God Elohim, and that is the, the Father who created everything, you know, and he created rules that cannot be broken, even though we do break them. Um, but yet, we have to stand before God and answer for those rules, right? And there's there's a strict and specific guideline, and there's no compromise. There's zero, zero compromise in front of God the Father. The only, if you, to use the same word compromise that exists, is if we receive mercy. And mercy happens because God of justice can also be God of mercy, but only through Jesus Christ, through becoming the sacrifice on this earth. And that concept is like, it only makes sense as one, one person that, that Jesus in this sacrificial mode of God is the same. If it was like three separate people, none of this would fit. It, it, it just, it wouldn't be a, a, a theology that makes sense. Oh, I sent one person to do this and I sent someone else to do that. And in the end, this is what you get. It's like, no, it's, it's not that it's, it's the creator who came down to be like us. 
And it was very important that the record of the Jaredites was held back until after Jesus manifested himself in the flesh. I don't fully understand that, but that's why the Book of Ether is not chronological in the Book of Mormon. That's why it's at the end of the Book of Mormon before Moroni signs off, because those records were supposed to be withheld. And, you know, obviously they were from the people. So then, Mike, the question remains, why is this hard for our people? And I think one of the things we can look at is our own church history. Uh, I have three or four sources here, and, and I think you'll get the gist of this. Joseph Smith's story as told in the RLDS church history. says, after I retired to the place where I'd previously designed to go, having looked around, finding myself alone, I kneeled down, began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I had scarcely done so when immediately I was seized by some power which entirely overcame me and had such astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time as I was doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of his, this enemy which had seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, uh, he said, just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which had bound me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. And one of them spake to me, calling me by name and saying, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. So, we get this pretty complete description in our church history that, of course, there were two two personages. Joseph saw them, and the, mm-hmm. this is what our, our church history says. If if I would look up <clears throat> the story of the church, uh, as Inez Smith Davis writes, it's basically word for word that uh, what she says in in her writing was the same thing. Um, and, and I'm not going to read as much. I'll just read a little bit. Uh, considering uh, that God could not be the author of confusion, I desired to investigate more fully, believing that if God had a church, it wouldn't be up to factions. And he goes on to say this. I had confidence. He talks about the book of James, of course. I retired in a secret grove and began to call upon the Lord. While fervently engaged in supplication, my mind was taken away from the objects with which I was surrounded. I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness, surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday. And it goes on. So here we have the story of the church. We have the church history talking about two personages. Well, why is this important at all? And what's important is the fact that in Joseph's own diary, it says something totally different. And this is his, you can view this online in his handwriting, I believe. Yeah, you can view it in his handwriting. Joseph Smith papers, which is just facsimiles of every, of of the, uh, well, it's not typed out of some other source. It's his his writing. Yeah, I'm I'm reading this from the website archive.org, where they've just archived a lot of things uh, without any religious per uh, you know 
uh, intent. It's just archived things, and, and here it is here. Um, <clears throat> he, he wrote, and, and this is in different language altogether, but let me jump in the middle of this. When I considered all these things that uh, seeketh that each being that seeketh such to worship him as worship him in spirit and in truth, therefore I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else to whom I could go and obtain mercy. And again, this is for all the same reasons. He was trying to find clarity. The Lord heard my cry in the wilderness, and while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in the 16th year of my age, a pillar of fire of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me. I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord, singular. He spake unto me, saying, Joseph, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk on my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. And he goes, and he continues in this vein, I was crucified for the world, for all that believe in my name may have eternal life. And he goes on in this singular person, one person in Joseph's diary came to him in that light. One person claimed to be God. One person claimed to be the Savior. And and this is where the story started. But it's not how it was written later on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so then the question, where, why is uh, church history and the story of the church, which is another book that you know probably every uh, saint that's got any generations within their family knows that book. We've got several copies, the story of the church. It's a great condensed version of a lot of things that happened, but it's like a lot of things on the internet today. One thing starts quoting another and starts quoting another, and it, it's tied back to one, usually one either truth or one fallacy, but we just get caught up in, in quoting each other. And, and yeah. just not even too long ago, we had a, a I was listening to a sermon and uh, the the little green pamphlet that you can get at Christ. Joseph Smith tells his own story. We've made it into a publication. It was pulled out and read. But it, but what's the source of that? You know, why did that and get what, changed? What, and what did that say in that pamphlet that was shared in the sermon? Well, the two personages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the it's it's just an excerpt, I believe, from church history. Yeah, and so because we say, well, it's history. Well, then it might be. You know, it, it's considered it has to be gospel, and there's a totally different meaning to gospel than just <clears throat> got printed in a volume of books. So, at some point, it sounds like uh, there's another version, or or either maybe Joseph was talking, and someone took that testimony and changed it, and then wrote down Joseph. What? What? Where did these come from? Why did it get changed? Or what was the Wentworth letter you referenced? Yeah, so the Wentworth letter, and I don't know that I I really need to read it. It's more of the same on two personages. It was a a letter from Joseph to a guy named John Wentworth, and John Wentworth then wrote and published other things. But in that letter, then Joseph's talking about two personages. But here's the point. It was written, I believe, in 1842 during the Nauvoo period when everything was seeming to slide downhill. And this idea that suddenly it was two personages, you know, it's Joseph was uh, born in 1805, so he would have been 16 in uh, 1821, is that right? Mm. And so his this idea that 
you know, and it was still nine more years before the church was established, but it was, it was 20 years prior when he had this experience. And now he's writing about it 20 years later. Did it, was it unintentional to say there was two personages? Well, his diary said something totally different. It's, his diary said one. Why that changed over time? I mean, if you answer that question, you probably answer the crux of the whole issue of the whole Nauvoo period, which, you know, would be easier if it could just be erased from our history, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. And there was so much that happened, you know, the adultery in the hearts of people and their uh, their misgivings towards all all things polygamous. Um, and, and somehow now, going back to your, your first question, how is it that, we, you know, we got these problems or how is it that the LDS can't teach these things? of the Book of Mormon, it's because they hold on to everything that happened in Nauvoo like it was gospel and it was true. And that just doesn't seem to be the case. It was like our people were falling quickly. And and maybe Joseph Smith had made mistakes and errors in that too. But um, to to look at this and just say everything was fine is to not be objective. And and, and if we're not objective, obviously we, we won't come to the source of truth. And so in this time period when that letter was written to John Wentworth, it was in a time of, of great spiritual upheaval. And I think about this, you know, you think, just consider for a minute the, the ramifications of polygamy in the hearts of men. You know, the, the Doctrine and Covenants had stated years before Nauvoo, hey, if you lust in your heart after women, you're going to deny this spirit. Right, and it it, set, it states that in so many words, you know. In other words, uh, adultery can't exist in your heart with God's spirit. God's spirit's not going to dwell there if, if there's adultery in your heart. And I mean, you, if you don't believe it, try it. And I'm not saying to try it, but that's the point: is that it's it's a strong, uh, wicked curse against us if we're adulterous in our hearts. And so, in this time period, though. Everyone is preaching and everyone is getting quoted and everything is getting written down. And I'm thinking all these people that we've held up in history, in the early part of history, have so many of them have moved into this adulterous way of thinking. How can God's spirit be in their heart? You know, how, how can the things that they are stating and things that were written then be of any spiritual worth to us if they were adulterers? And the, and the point we have to consider is that maybe that whole city and town and culture was off, you know, maybe they were wrong. And, and obviously that is the answer. But if that's the case, we have to go back and rethink how we've evaluated ourselves since then, you know, in, in light of it and, and consider, hey, all these things, put a big circle around them and then put an X through it, all these ideas that came out of that culture. You know, you get, you get polygamy, you get multiple gods, you get the heaven, you know, and earth, and going to different planets and all these different things that were spawned out of that time. And they were coming from the hearts of adulterers, basically. Yeah. And adultery, uh, the scripture does say that the spirit can't dwell when that's present. And of course that goes in so many levels to, uh, having one God and one love and one church and one bride. And, and when, when you divide that love or that, thinking in your brain between more than one woman and all of that you're 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 also on the spiritual level living out something that can't be um, that you can't have more than your true love which is jesus 
Yeah. Uh, the other thing I was thinking, and this <clears throat> this may, I, I could see where this could be a depressing or sad topic to the saints. I always find it as a freeing, um, helps with my understanding of why things are the way they are. But we, we, we like to take trips to Nauvoo and to the Carthage Jail, and it's this, it's this holy place where we think, look at all of these saints live together and we're dwelling together. And I think on, on some levels that's, uh, there's a lot of, um, well, uh, encouragement. There's a lot of, uh, it's neat to see that there was groups of people that were able to do these things together. But I think also it's it's it can be a great place to go to as a reminder of what happens when we set up a golden calf rather than yeah. go up to the mountain and see God for who he is. I mean, that's a great, great analogy of, of um, just the the saints building a golden calf and making God into their image uh, yeah. of two personages. And I, another takeaway from this is we say, well, well, how can you take one after the other? Or you know, if you if you have a copy of him writing a letter to Wentworth or whatever, and he states two personages, I would say focus on this: the his own diary. He wrote down a very different story that probably 90% of the saints have never heard. Never heard. And if you read that story of what happened when when God answered Joseph's prayer, like what do we do? And God began to move and bring forth these writings of the ancient inhabitants that prayed to him that they would come forth to his people. When you take all of that into consideration and read what the Book of Mormon states and how it describes who God is, and then realize that there is a handwritten letter that falls right into line from the man who, who translated that book and forget about the rest of it that may, if, if it's off center from who God is, then you can't believe those accounts. I don't care who said it. Even I don't care uh, how many times they said yeah, it. Yeah, and, and as Paul stated, Joseph's the same way. Even if I or an angel from heaven tell you something different that's off from the gospel, then don't have anything to do with it. Paul recognized that. Uh, probably the ability that even he could fall, that he could stray, and that they needed to stick to the truth. And so with Joseph, even if Joseph himself would say something later on that was contrary to the word of God and how God presents himself, then shame on him and don't take anything to do with it. But the beautiful thing is we don't know how all of that stuff got manipulated, but there is a handwritten copy of what actually transpired on that first record. You would think that would be the most accurate. And and like you just stated, the, this type and shadow is the same as the golden calf, but the difference being that, you know, in this case, and we always want to give Joseph the benefit of the doubt, it seems that here the one designated to lead the church, or at least appointed to lead the church, is the one also promoting the golden calf. You know, here's two personages, right? And so, and that's at a much later time, that's shortly before his death. I I know historians will go back and forth on this forever, but the the point of this is that, like you stated also, if you read what the Book of Mormon states about God and Jesus and, and their entity is one, and you read what Joseph Smith first said, it's the same. It's the same. I mean, it's it's calling on God and seeing Jesus Christ. That's what happened to the brother of Jared. That's what happened to Joseph in the grove, according to his yeah. own his own pen. The voice from the from the light that said, "I am the Lord." <clears throat> and it's and it's the same that happened to the Nephites 
when they hear this voice from heaven and then they see this man come down, he says, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. And it's like, so why did he do it that way? It's like he's always had to do it that way because for God to be, you know, God transformed himself <clears throat> to abide with us. And and unless he did that, we could never, we could, we could not see him. We, right. You know, and so this... And it's more than just seeing him physically with our eyes. So he he came to be with us. This is the story from the beginning. And and like you mentioned with Moses and the burning bush and the Bible Project people and their insight, yeah, they had to see this all. And they, they come around the long way, but they arrive at the same conclusion. It had to be Jesus. Well, that's, yeah, let me read just from the transcript from one of their recent podcasts. And they're, they're, they are reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God without the um, without the culture of there were two personages in a grove that the founder yeah, of the church. Yeah, they're not so, fighting that, right? So, so listen to this. John John one fourteen uh, is the scripture. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now they go to uh, have a little commentary on this scripture, and they say John is claiming that the one Moses met on Mount Sinai became human. And he describes this human with the words of Exodus 34, 6, the first time God reveals himself in, to the people of who he is. The quote is, full of grace and truth. These words are one of the main ways the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, translated loyal, love, and faithfulness. In other words, Jesus is the incarnate God of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Yeah. That's, that's the... Um, meaning they get from studying the Hebrew language and from studying what the word actually says and looking, they look at the Bible as this literature, not, uh, not where you just pick out pieces and say, I'm going to make a, uh, a whole theology on this, but they, as what's the story telling us and over and over again, not just here, they show how it's all one unified story leading to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the old Testament is just about Jesus just as much as the New Testament. Mm. Uh, we forget about, or we don't, we sing the songs that Isaiah wrote, uh, wonderful counselor, almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, uh, talking about Jesus. Amen. Yes. And so I are, we really, I think more so than other Christians and other uh, denominations, our culture really has to deal with this golden calf of God was made into the image of man in a way that he was not supposed to be from the very beginning. That has some problems, too, because how do you accept the Book of Mormon or the man who translated the Book of Mormon uh, if he uh, testifies to the very incorrect nature of the Godhead? Exactly. And thankfully, the book that he translated is something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. One of the arguments, Corey, that um, that uh, you've you've referenced before, talk to me about Stephen um, and his uh, what he saw when he was killed and what that verbiage meant. But that how people have used that maybe in our our faith culture to say that there's two personages. And then I, after you do that, I want to read from the Book of Mormon referencing the same thing. Okay, so Acts chapter seven is the story of Stephen. 
and Stephen's on trial, he's he's answering questions, and it's interesting because without reading it all, he gets he starts from the same spot where we're talking. He starts with the story of Moses and the golden calf and how these people were in the wilderness and they were rejoicing, it says, of the in the works of their own hands. You know, they they decided God could be a molten image that they could make. And and then it talks about how God turned them over and the different things that had happened. Well, as Stephen recounts these things, he's he's building up to this time now when there when there's Jesus Christ. And and you know, he includes things like Solomon builds a, a, a temple, but God who's bigger than all these things doesn't dwell in the temples made with hands. You know, he, he dwells in our hearts. The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What are you going to build me? You know, these these questions and the experience go on. But then he he gets up to this point right here. And this is Acts 7, verse 49. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one of whom you now have been the betrayers and murderers. So Stephen spent 50 verses explaining how everything that had happened in their history with Moses and the calf and the wilderness and the temples and all these things were leading up to this just one. They were pointing the way for him. And now he says, and you murdered him. Uh, He said, you were the ones who have now been betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. So they were, maybe that's a literal thing, but maybe it's just uh, a device to say they were mad and angry and yelling at him, gnashing on him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And at this point, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, you know, picture them with their hands over their ears, and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. What enraged them was this statement, not about Moses, not about the temple, not even so much about the prophets, but when he says, hey, I see Jesus, and I'm going to say it the way it's written here, I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God. So that sounds like two personages. And again, it's, you know, people look at this and they say, well, obviously God's there and Jesus is there and there's two of them, right? So this is why there must be three beings because the Holy Spirit must be the third part of this. The problem is the the translation of the New Testament, Stephen's, Stephen's not describing in his vision 
seeing two people. What's important is what he's saying is on the right hand of God. I'm seeing the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. To stand on the right hand of God was not just this figurative, oh, I see God there and to his right is Jesus, you know, in the place of power. To stand on the right hand of God meant in the in a Hebrewism that you had God's full power and authority. And and there's a huge difference here. He's it's I believe part of this is just a bad translation, but there's power lost in this because what Stephen is saying is nothing different than what Jesus said to Caiaphas and all the, the court before he was crucified. It was the one question he answered when they asked him a lot of questions and he answered nothing. And they said, well, are, are you the son of God? And he said, you know, you, you've said this already. But he said then, he says, uh, and I'm going to get this scripture. So Matthew 26, verse 65. This is Jesus' response. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, in other words, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? In other words, are you God in the flesh? And he says, you just said it. He said, nevertheless, I say unto you hereafter, shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven? See, coming in the clouds of heaven, this wasn't going to be like, you know, it it makes it sound like, hey, Jesus is going to return in his glory in like two weeks and you're going to see it, you know, once Mm -hmm. he's dead and resurrected. It didn't mean that either, but it meant that Jesus was going to be resurrected. But this, again, here's the real reference, and this is exactly, and this is perhaps only what Stephen was saying. He was quoting Jesus. He basically said, hey, this guy you killed, he said these words, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. In other words, the right hand of power was God's full authority. In other words, this was doing everything that the Jews and their law said you couldn't do. It was equating a human with God. It was saying that this human standing in front of them was going to fully have the power of God, Elohim. And they're like, that can't be. Mm -hmm. And this is why he held off all their other questions because this was the point. He didn't answer any of them until he said, he basically said, you're going to see that I am God, Elohim. I'm the God of justice. I'm the God of everything. And they, that's why they killed him. And, and so that's why they killed Stephen as well, because when he's saying, hey, I see Jesus sitting on the right hand of God, it wasn't what he was saying. He was saying this, what Jesus was saying, that Jesus sitting on the right hand of power meant he had the full everything. He was God. It wasn't just like he was the son of and God is my dad and I'm the junior. Mm-hmm. Part of a community of different beings that were all kind of the same or, or thought the same way. Right. This was the most powerful thing you could say. You know, if someone was on the right hand of someone in that day, it meant they had the, the full authority, but maybe they were a different person. But in this case, it's saying, no, he's saying, I am God. And so how do we know this is true? Verse 66, then the high priest rent his clothes. He tears his clothes. And now again, this is the high priest. This is the Roman soldiers. This is the, the Jewish priest tears his clothes saying, he hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard what this blasphemy, what do you think? And they said, he is guilty and worthy of death, mm-hmm. you know, for, for basically equating himself to God. And, and yet that's the full power of what he was saying. And then Stephen later meets death by 
reinforcing exactly the same thing, what, what Jesus said that he was going to do. I see him. That is, that's where he's at. That's what he's doing. Exactly. Now. And, and so that's exactly what Stephen was saying was the same thing Jesus said. And, and when we see it that way, then we can come back to the Book of Mormon and say, oh my gosh, it's exactly what the Book of Mormon's been saying. But what we're not completed yet, there's still more. And this part of this gets into uh, a subject which I'll just state. Um, in the inspired version, we have this statement about this council being held before humanity, I guess, at some point in time, where, hey, who's going to go save mankind? And it, it sounds like it's up for a bid, you know. It's like, ah, well, I'll do, I'll do it. You mm-hmm. do it. That idea does not match the Book of Mormon in this reason. The Book of Mormon states that the cost of our sin was infinite. This price that had to be paid was the price of infinity, and there was and is and has been only one who is infinite, who could have paid that price. That is God the Father. To even entertain, now say it happened exactly the way the the King James, or the the inspired version states that, you know, Satan, maybe maybe it did happen that way, and maybe that's why Satan got angry. We don't know that from the Book of Mormon. We just have this from the inspired version. But they aren't necessarily disconnected. Maybe God even played satan in this and well and, and it, this reminds me of the of a, a literary type literary of, device such as uh was satan really uh talking to god about job and it's 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 a it's a way to get a point across we have to be really careful in, in our place in time not to take this as a, a set of instruction a b c d it's you can't put it in that place you have to look at what the stories saying and why why uh well there's certain things that were transpiring there that weren't right taking away the choice of men uh the person coming was the son of god but but yeah exactly in the in the, in it you know how things work in heaven with jesus being god and them being one you know we haven't been there at least with a recollection to be able to state with any authority we don't understand that but like you're pointing out there's a greater there's a greater meaning to all this that we can't just dive down into it like this. For instance, Lehi's only account that we have, it says, "I get this feeling that Satan was an angel in authority and he fell from heaven," but that's all he states. It wasn't it wasn't anything more, right? And so why this brings us in? Why can't the Mormons teach that? Um, of who God is, because then you lose all of this. Satan and Jesus were brothers, and uh, we we progress from you know the sun type God of this world to having our own planet one day. The whole philosophy of the religion falls apart. Exactly, but they've extracted, and maybe from this version of of the inspired version, it leads to their golden calf of we're going to make God into somebody different. But we have to let this this be as it is in its own place, as maybe just trying to. A parable or showing a story of what you know happened. I, I think that's right. I, I think that's what it is. It's that you know, God, God and Jesus aren't two separate people walking around in heaven. I don't think that's the case either. I, I don't think the story, as you state, it's just like you know your reference to Job. You know, like it's it's almost like God and, and Satan meeting in the back alley somewhere and flipping a coin over mm-hmm. Job's life. You know, and it's like 
Does it really work that way? I doubt it. But it makes it seem almost cheap and dirty, like, you know, hey, they're, they're having bets on us, you know, and it's like, right. uh, I, don't, I don't believe that. But yet that's how the story is presented. And in this mode, I think we have to take the higher understanding that no, what the Book of Mormon teaches is that God and Jesus and the Holy Ghost are one, period. We have to believe that. And then we have... Then we can freely apply that to every other scripture we come across, right. and we can understand that scripture in light of the truth of the Book of Mormon. And our people have not been taught to do that. No, we uh, Isaiah, like we said, describes who he is. The one thing I saw a scripture this week that really is just amazing um, when you, when you take this. So Stephen was basically Jesus told him this will happen. You'll see the Son of of God on the or the Son of Man on the right hand, Jesus, uh, Stephen fulfills Christ's prophecy or or gives legitimacy to it and says, you know, just like Jesus said that, I see him right now. Like what he said is true. He is on the power, the seat of authority in heaven. And so I know the argument along with we pick out little scriptures in the Bible and say, well, how did Jesus pray to himself? And, and you know, there's two people in heaven. Jesus was on the right hand. But listen to what the Book of Mormon says very plainly in Mosiah 11, uh, starting at, uh, we'll start at verse 129. For behold, this is my church. Whoever is baptized shall be baptized under repentance, and whoever ye receive shall believe in my name. And him will I freely give. So we we have this person talking. My church, uh, I will receive in my name. I will freely forgive. For it is I that taketh upon me the sins of the world. It is I that hath created them. So who takes on the sins of the world? We know that's Jesus. But it also says it's I that has created them. It is I that granteth unto him that believeth in the end a place at my right hand. Yeah, so, so who's that? <laughs> so there's no, well, that's that's a, a plain and precious truth written for us to understand in our day, wow. the same person that will take take upon the sins of the world. Oh, wow. We know that's Jesus. Come yeah. down and die. I'll receive them unto me. I've created them. I'll grant unto them that believeth in the end, a place at my right hand. Just so, like Stephen, and, and even just yeah. like Jesus said of himself. So this clarifies the language in a way that we need to understand. For behold, in my name they are called, and if they know me, they shall come forth and shall have a place eternally at my right hand. Wow. There is no uh, uh, second best where you get to be with Jesus. The, the one that died for you will give you a place at his right hand, and that's it, man. You're in him, with him forever in eternity at his right hand. The oh, simple yeah. plan of salvation. Yeah, amen. If that's you beautiful. repent and believe, right, and, and, and what, what that entails. That is, that's, just ties everything together. And, and that is it. That is the nutshell, if you will, of all this. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to stop today, but not that this is done. I, I want to actually, let me let me read something because this this. I always ask myself why, why, why is this important? And we've talked before. Like I, I see the, I always have a soft spot for like the young mothers who are raising their children and teaching them to be good and believe in Jesus. And and does this, does this disconnect that's been in our history? Does that affect them? Is or do they have a simple faith of of be good, come to God, come to Christ? I don't, I don't know. But for 
a culture of a church that we go and that we go and worship every Sunday, this has affected it, and I believe it has affected our relationship with our God. I want to explore why or how and how understanding God as he uh, as he is explained in the Book of Mormon um, allows us to be changed more into his image. And, mm-hmm. Because there has to be a connection. Otherwise, who cares it's if just we just debate this? Theoretical, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to read just from um, from one more quote from the Bible Project, uh, talking about the place of the Bible. Uh, it says, the Bible does things like this. It, it uh, begins to raise the question, you know, who gets to define what is good, humans or God? And instead of just answering this and other sets of moral questions, um, it, 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 it brings us into a relationship of aligning like our character, our ethics, our morals with God's character. That's we want to have the law written on our heart, not a not a rule book or this is who God is. This is what ha-. we want to be changed, right? We want to, and it says, uh, like Jesus does this when he affirms the rule against murder and teaches his disciples that there is a greater depth to it. The, the scripture clearly, "Thou shalt not kill." You know, a law, a rule, but Jesus goes beyond that and says, you know, anger and hatred within a, a heart to someone is just like murder. There's a there's a greater thing of it's not just a rule don't kill somebody you can hate them but just don't don't yeah. throw a rock at their head and kill them you know you can talk bad about them you can be angry right. you can you know do whatever you want to do call the police that their grass is too high but <laughs> but don't don't kill them right Jesus said no there's something deeper there uh, and it says that a rule book tells people what to do and leaves it at that. But wisdom literature like the Bible is designed to form certain kinds of people who need fewer rules because the convictions expressed by those rules have become a part of their character. Oh, yeah. And I think we can take that to the who is God, that we we don't have to look at it like, hey, how can one exist, ice, water, three ways? It's more like you have to understand him. He wants us to understand him so that it becomes part of who we are mm-hmm. and part of our testimony of easily sharing him with the world and those that don't know anything about him or salvation, mm-hmm. especially the the Jewish Israelite culture, his people that need to come back to understand and will understand him. Yeah. You know, they killed him because they didn't get it, but the Book of Mormon will help them get this is this is who he is. Yeah, yeah, in a powerful way. So uh, next time, hopefully, we can um, maybe break down more, uh, maybe some more arguments or fallacies, but also why it's important to see it as it is. And so, I think we've actually we, we know the the reason why can't the Mormons um, teach this, but also why won't the Restoration teach who God is? Because we've got the golden calf of the first vision in the church history and other books that has supplanted. Uh, the truth of God, and yeah. and that golden calf has prevented us from worshiping who He is, and instead we worship who we've created, and we we raise up these testimonies or letters as Scripture and, and who God is, and that just can't be the Scripture, the the Word written from the mouths of prophets and from God Himself has to be who He is, not not um, a collection of letters of history that even contradict each other. Right at the very least. Take it. Take the one that supports Scripture, but not the golden calf of all this other stuff that that changes the image of God. Yeah. So the challenge becomes recognizing what that golden calf is and saying no. That's that's 
leave that over there. We, we got to know who God is. Mm-hmm. Let him become a part of us. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of Jewish scholars that say that, that, that story in the wilderness of the golden calf, a portion of that affects every single generation of people on this earth wow. as they take God and change his image. And we've been given this beautiful tool to see him as he is plain and precious in these last days, right? To know how to come to him. Wow. wow. And even the writers, right? The writers of the book knew that was a purpose and knew that we needed to understand him in the last days, being far removed from their culture and Hebrew, to know him simply as he is. You know, it just makes me shake my head sometimes to think, how could they have known so much? How could they have shared so much? And how could we not get it? Yeah. And their beautiful love and insight and for and um, projecting to the future to be so concerned about people that are going to need to know Jesus in the last days as his kingdom and, and everything is fulfilled on the earth. What a beautiful collection of writings that yeah. were just kept hid until these last few hundred years. Yeah, and we have them in our hands. So. Well, uh, enjoyed the discussion today, brother. Yeah, you're on a roll, buddy. I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> until next time, Corey. Let's keep walking each other home. Amen.